Hey guys, this is Ishai Breslauer and welcome to the CRE Shark Eye Show where we discuss commercial real estate. On Mondays, we dive deep into an asset class and on Thursdays, we go into some inspirational stories for the weekend. Can't wait to start. Let's go. Hey guys, before we continue, I would like to introduce you to the seven day CRE challenge, which will introduce you to commercial real estate and will show you that anyone can do this. Also, I have the free cheat sheet for commercial real estate with the six best secrets for commercial real estate. You can download it free. Just click below or above wherever it is and get it. Let's continue. All right, guys, Ishai Breslauer here. I hope you guys are doing fantastic on this beautiful Monday morning. I hope you guys are doing well. And uh, Mondays, we dive deep into an asset class and we do whatever we can in order to learn as much as we can about an asset class. Today, we have a very special guest and I can't wait to start. You have no idea. And I have so many questions for her and I'm so excited for this. And I want to tell you one thing. Retail is what everybody talks about. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about it. We're live on LinkedIn, on YouTube, on Facebook, my Facebook page. And it's going to be the CRE Shark Eye Show. You can see it. You can hear it on the podcast. And uh, I'm so excited. So let's begin. And without further ado, without further ado, here is Carly Iacono. Hi, it's a pleasure to meet you and finally have you on the show. So thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Great to connect and appreciate everyone tuning in. Thank you so, so much. So, uh, okay. So let's start from this. Let's start from this. Um, Tell us about yourself, your personal story. How did you get into real estate? How did you get into retail? Go. All right. I'm ready. So my father is a broker. So I grew up going on sales meetings with him from a very early age. And I think that's what started a love of negotiation and the business and understanding investments. I then worked with him for a few years doing development and then left to start a boat company totally different range, uh, which gave me some great insight into running a business and understanding what would be now my view on tenants and business operations. I sold that company and then went completely into commercial real estate and now lead a, an investment sales team that focuses on net lease properties on a national basis. So we'll sell everything from a Home Depot to Starbucks, Wendy's, everything in between, really focused heavily on the national brands um, as a primary focus. And we do some multi-tenant retail and redevelopment as well. Okay. So first of all, that's very cool. Question. Did you keep a boat? <laughs> I didn't. A, a I know. yacht or something? I will have another one. It's in the master plan, uh, but not today. Yes. I got it. I got it. Okay. So at least you know what you're doing with boats. So whenever yes. you buy it, you know what to buy. Okay, so okay, so here is about here's what I want to talk about when it comes to retail. Um, you focus, you just said on so uh, a lot of people who are listening to us because I have so many things I can't even wait to ask, but I want to go gradually, and my way to do things is very um, organized. I go from the macro to the micro, and that's what I want to do today. Um, and a lot of people who are listening to us are pros and they want to just get to the point, but some, some of them are beginners and they want to learn about real estate and we have to go from the macro in order to get them to understand. So if you could please tell us what you focus on, the difference between, you know, the things that we know, but not everybody knows 
to put some some light to shed some light on the issue of um, what type of properties you go for. You just said Home Depot and the Starbucks. Then the differences between the nationals and the moms and pops, the you know the 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 triple net or the single tenant type of a way versus you know the 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 strip mall with a, a lot of tenancies and you know the tenant mix that should be different. If you could walk us through a little bit about the retail and then we'll start diving in. Go. Sure, absolutely. So on the most basic level, a net lease property is one in which the tenant pays taxes, maintenance and insurance in addition to rent. So the reason that's so important is it because it creates a passive investment structure. So these types of assets can be really managed. There's no management. They can be invested in from anywhere in the country or overseas. And a lot of our clients are not in real estate as their primary business. So they're using this as a way to diversify their holdings, maybe their retirement, maybe do estate planning. So it's a really unique deal structure, which has additional benefits to it. Multi-tenant retail, you can have individual tenants under net leases where they would share in the expenses of the property management, but there's still going to be some involvement, some overview. When you have a national brand on a true net lease, they will often handle everything directly. And you'll hear the term mailbox money because it is completely passive. So that's one interesting piece of the, the asset class. And there's a huge range of price point. There's a huge range of pros and cons of different tenants, which we can get into. You know, a Home Depot might be 15, 20 million. A Starbucks could be 900,000 a million. So there's a large range of prices and types of deals, depending on how much rent that tenant actually pays under their lease. That's how you derive the, the valuation. Now, tell me something. Dealing with the nationals versus dealing with moms and pops. If you could tell us a little bit about the differences in dealing with them, because we know there are so many differences, not only the leases, mm-hmm. but we're talking about the leases, the type of, uh, you know, concessions, the type of the dealing, the daily dealing. And we're not talking COVID right now. We're going to de- dive in, you know, into that. We're talking about, you know, generally. If you could tell sure. us a little bit about that. So on the national side, the reason a lot of people go that route is the lease terms are usually longer. So if you have a brand new construction CBS, for example, they might write a 20 year base term, meaning the guaranteed term of the loan with another 40 years of options. So on a new build, you could have a lease that you can model out your income for 60 years. And that is a complete corporate guarantee. So whatever is in that lease is going to be upheld by the full corporate backing of CBS. Now, in exchange for that, though, you're probably going to be paying more. You're going to be getting less of a return on your money because everything is risk return, right? Risk reward in real estate in life, basically. So you're getting a long term stability. You're getting a nice long lease, but you're going to have less room to negotiate with that tenant. CBS would want more upfront money to build the building. It's called tenant improvement money. They're very specific on their development criteria. The buildings all look very similar as you've seen, and they're going to be rigid with those lease terms. Now on the, the mom and pop affectionately called terms. Also, we just add also the credit, the credit aspect, meaning all, all those companies, most of them are, how do you say, are, are public companies and their credit aspect comes into play and it's very important also. Correct. So we have investment grade and non-investment grade, public and private. 
And those are all four different pieces that go together in different ways. So investment right. grade tenants like CVS, like Walgreens, um, those will trade at a more aggressive cap rate, higher price, lower return because of the credit of the tenant. Now, a lot of national tenants are non-investment grade, which would be most of your fast food, some of your auto parts, Rite Aid. There's a lot of them really. Daycares, for example, some of your medical net lease. That doesn't mean that they're not good investments. It just means that either they're not publicly rated or the rating comes in just below that investment grade level. So pub everything that's public or national does not necessarily mean investment grade, but you will get a premium in pricing, a lower return to the investor if it is investment grade. So you're correct. That really comes into play with the strength of your lease because you have not only who your tenant is, but who your guarantor on that lease is, meaning who is backing all of the obligations under that lease. And I'll give you a great example. You could have a Wendy's under a 20 year lease, but your tenant could be a two unit operator or your guarantor on that lease could be a local operator. So you might have Wendy's, which is a national brand, but not a corporate guarantee on that lease. So those are two separate things to, to really pay attention to. That's a very good perspective. And tell me something. Now we're getting a little bit more into, um, how do you say, the pre-COVID environment. The pre-COVID environment. Walk us through how was the market like then, okay? What happened then? Where were the cap rates? Where, where were the, you know, the whole tenant mix thought process? Um, landing environment and everything else. Meaning I have more questions, but let's start with that. Sure. So pre-COVID, our favorite word in retail was experiential and service. So anything that was an experience for the consumer is where we all thought the industry was going. So those are your, even like Dave and Buster's, something that you can go and do an activity with your friends and family. That was a crucial part of every center. Um, everyone loved restaurants as one of the best uses and they were expanding like crazy because people wanted to go out again and experience to have something to do with uh, their friends and family. On the other side, anything service-based, anything that couldn't be replaced by Amazon and the internet was really the focus. Uh, some of that is held true. Obviously, our experiential has been crushed. Uh, gyms, really difficult, and they used to be a, a bright spot. Movie theaters, restaurants, all those categories were just slammed by COVID. I think they'll come right. back. Before, be before, but, sorry, before we go into COVID, just one question to add to that. Sure. Okay. Sure. When you had, when you had all these tenants, okay. Let's give let's give an example. Let's give a live example. Let's say you have, in one center, you have a gym, you have uh, you have some moms and pops, you have a nail salon, you have all those, and then you have a few nationals like, uh, um, like a Starbucks and other type of nationals that pretty much hold the center that are the anchors. Here's the question. The dealing pre-COVID again, the dealing with them, and before we go to the dealing with the tenants, when it comes to to them as retailers, okay, where they have to compete with the whole e-commerce revolution and Amazon, all that stuff. When it comes to that, who is suffering the most? And here's the question. From those, because you have clothing, you have apparel, right? You have those who do apparel, 
but you have those who do apparel and people still go to the store and buy. And again, that's brief COVID still, but I believe that the world will come back to it. But I'm saying, what is the big difference? Who Amazon hit the most? Okay, that's the question. Between those who are apparel, of course, you can't drink a coffee with your phone. I tried that, can't happen, <laughs> right? And you can't eat with your phone also. But between those who are not food and those who got, meaning who were in danger to be, to get hit by Amazon. Pre-COVID. Who is the one who is more in danger and mm -hmm. who is the one who is less in danger when I'm thinking about my strategy when I'm getting my strip center? On a strip center, I think it's the local tenants that don't have a clear brand or connection with their consumer base in that local community. So there's some local tenants that, you know, in your town that maybe are a, an icon, everyone goes to whatever that store is because there's just so much community engagement. It was the ones that didn't have that brand loyalty that were maybe just the card shop, the, the local dress shop, that the prices were a little higher than online and there really was no specific differenti excuse me, differentiator. So that's where I think the most pain was pre-COVID and will continue to be the issue. The difference is on the local operator level, they usually don't have the same level of technology. So they don't have the same tools to understand the consumer and their shopping behaviors and manage their inventory. They don't have the same website and that omni-channel presence. Even if they have a website, it's not driving a lot of their traffic. So that's, I think, the hardest element to compete with is the prop tech, is the engaging with consumer from a data-driven perspective and creating exactly. an omni-channel presence. They might have the best product, but if they can't get it in front of the right people at an accessible price point and be adaptable to managing that inventory, it's hard to compete. And I think that's that's really the issue that a lot of those you know, businesses are gonna have. You know, what's, what you're saying is so true and so cool also, because you know the pre-COVID environment, we saw uh, when Amazon came in, right? and the whole e-commerce revolution came in, we had so many stores, meaning the Sears, the JCPenney's, they got hit so hard. And at the same time, you have on the other side, you have the Walmarts who adapted, and you have mm -hmm. even Target that got hit in the beginning, and then they sort of managed to understand what, you know, the difference between their brick and mortar and the e-commerce and how to adapt very quickly and get things done, and they did it. So. The question I want to lead to is, again, this is all pre-COVID still, and this is not nothing to do with COVID. This is also a lot to do with the new world to come, as we call it. We're going to talk about it later, but not the world to come, the world after COVID. That's what I mean. But the big question is, what is the balance when we look at it today between e-commerce and brick and mortar? What is the real good balance or there's no balance or there's no right thing? What do you think? So omni-channel continues to be proven as the clear winner and the best model. We're seeing a lot of online brands try to get retail physical space because people like to connect in a real format. They like to go in and touch the goods and just have engagement with the brand beyond just online. So. It, I think the mix is crucial of having both. You need the online presence, but you also need the store experience. And I'll give you a great example. You know, nobody wants awesome. just dry, low cost 
shopping experience. Costco's killing it, Walmart's killing it. So you could say that's not true. Everyone just price shopping, but they're not. You know, Target just cr uh, created a partnership with Sephora in their stores. Right. They could easily just pop that stuff on their website. It's so easy to ship a tube of lipstick, right? The cost is low, you pick your color, boom. But that's not people what want people smell want. It. They wanna go in and, and they're building out these stores and they're creating exactly. a new facade so people know, hey, this is not just Target. This is Target. And you can come in and have the Sephora shopping experience at the same time. So if that didn't work, they would not be rolling it out across the country. And there's so many other examples of that. Dick's Sporting Goods partnering with Carrie Underwood to do some pop-up shops in certain parts, more in the Western part of the country. You know, people want new experiences. They want to feel part of something. Nobody actually at the end of the day wants to stay alone in their home and click for everything they need. It's convenience and right now that's what we're doing, but that's not really as people how we want to interact with the brands. So having both right. pieces is is really the next phase and what everybody's focused on. Okay, so what you said now, pop-up shops, that's something I want to go back to it later. That's okay. a big issue. That's something big I wanted to discuss. Sure. You know, because we hear so much about these and that's so exciting. And uh, I want to get back to it later. But right now, as we finish and wrapping up the pre-COVID, uh, the one thing I want to tell you is um, what type of deals you saw as a person who is in the say, front line of deals in retail, what type of deals you saw as the hottest deal right before COVID hit? So in that lease, it's pretty interesting. Our restaurants, our fast food restaurants were performing exceptionally well from an investment perspective pre-COVID and post-COVID. So uh, I, I know we're not going into post-COVID. Sorry to count myself. But no, we're going to get to it. Don't worry about it. We're going to dive deep into that. So they were doing really well. Convenience doing well. A lot of the same sectors because people were starting to realize retail's changing. COVID accelerated it, I would say, five to seven years. But everyone already knew the retail model was changing. So the, the local strip centers with the mom and pop, the cap rates were going up. There was less velocity on those a year ago. Of course, again, that was extremely wow. accelerated okay. by COVID, but there was some foresight there. There's been attention on national brands for, for a while. I think, you know, we had some surprises like gyms. You know, there was a lot of demand for our national brand gyms as the health craze continues and people are trying to get out. That's changed, of course. Um, but I, I think a lot of these trends were already in motion. Also, we and have a lot of grade. I'm sorry, say again? Also, we have a lot of retail. We have, I mean, not even talking about COVID. We just have a lot of sectors. We have a lot of retail. We have, you know, we have a lot of that. The inventory is just, was way too much. And that's going now into, into COVID. Now, COVID hit. And it was like a boom. And we spoke about this right before we went to, we went uh, online. And COVID changed our world, literally, everyone's world, in, in a way that we couldn't have imagined. And retail got bombarded. We all know that. The big question is, what was the difference? We know that retail got bombarded. And we all saw the stats that up to 70% of revenues of rents did not come in depends where and what and which asset class but now that we have you here if you could tell us who got hit the most because of covid 
and who got hit the least. Meaning, let's take, uh, and I know that when we talk about retail, as opposed to you know people who do multifamily, it's not a rule of thumb, but most of the people who do multifamily are focused in one state or in one city or in one area, okay, pretty much. Retailers are not. Retailers are nationwide because, you know, they have different type of, uh, of uh, strategies. Some of them are more focused in a certain area, but many of them are not, meaning a person who is in New Jersey like yourself may do deals in Texas. That's the way things are and, and do some, you know, collaboration with other brokers, uh, you know, everywhere. Here's the big question. Here's the big question. Which asset class got hit the most and why? It's been a huge bifurcation. So part of the retail market has actually done better. Prices have gone up, cap rates have come down. Now, I can see you questioning that. I'm gonna give you details in just a second. The other half of the market has been crushed. Really a huge spread. And I attribute that to two factors. One, the ability of the retailer to adopt and change their distribution model quickly and their flexibility of understanding consumers changing sentiment because of COVID. So first is just physical, how we shop. Are they, could they quickly do curbside pickup? Were they able to do fast shipping? Were they set up for all of that already or not? If it was a restaurant, how quickly could they do a, a streamlined menu for delivery? How quickly could they do delivery of drinks and higher profit margin items? How quickly could they pivot as a company? on the, the smaller, more local level. On the national brands, again, I think it's who had the best strategy to make getting those goods to the consumers easy and find a way to engage with them along the way. Uh, now on the flip side, we had, of course, the gyms were really hit. That's very difficult to do virtually. We've seen the rise of Peloton and some online competitors that are, are crushing it. But the you know larger brands like LA Fitness, we didn't see them jump into online classes to, con you know, to continue right. engaging with their, their client base. So that's just kind of fizzling. They're going elsewhere. There's definitely issues with those people potentially not coming back for a long time, if ever. So it's all about adaptability and how quickly that retailer was able to do so. Of course, there's certain segments that were hit harder than others. But what's interesting is the best in class in most of the segments, with a few exceptions like gyms and movie theaters that are just more physical businesses, but the best in class have gotten better. Right. The ones that were not as strong or maybe just didn't have all these other pieces, they're struggling more. Um, fast food, it, you know, a lot of that was drive-through already. Popeyes is a wonderful example. Their year-over-year -year sales during COVID were up 40%, up 40% because they were a drive-through base model. The food's inexpensive, right. people love it, they're killing it, right? And then you have other retailers, a lot of the soft goods that just couldn't pivot to the, the work from home, new wardrobe fast enough that are doing high-end things. It's taken longer. Um, you know, so I had a great interview with the CEO of Nordstrom and it was like, okay, I think we've got it now, but it took a long time to say, okay, all of these high-end dresses maybe aren't gonna sell. For a long time, what do we do? Yeah. How do we reconnect? Athleisure, you know, so forth. So again, I don't think there's a one size fits all answer. I think it depends on adaptability. And that's gonna be what makes retailers successful, any of them, for the next 10 years. Because we don't know what this whole world is gonna look like 
in two years. We know there'll be a vaccine. There is one. It'll get distributed. Maybe this will all go away. Hope, thank God, hopefully, right? Very soon. Yeah. But there's still change. So being flexible and being best in class in whatever category is, is going to be crucial. 100%. That's an excellent perspective. Here's one I want to ask you. Now, in the environment today, and I know you have done deals, meaning in this environment. Thank goodness. Yes. <laughs> Thank goodness. Very yes. grateful. Yeah. Yes. And that's a great thing. And the question is, I know in some, you can't go into certain type of details. Some things you can, some things you can't. What can you tell us about the deal you've done and what type of buyers are looking for what mm -hmm. and what type of deals are being out in the market? I'm not talking about the foreclosures yet. We're going to get to that. But I'm saying the classic deals. There's a seller. There's a buyer. What's going on in the market during COVID? So Q2 of this year, everybody went into panic mode from an investor perspective. The only transactions that we got done were clients who were in 1031 exchanges where they had a tight timeline and they had to transact. Everybody else backed up, went on the sidelines and went, we have no idea what the world's going to look like in a few months. We're waiting. Q3, the sentiment started changing and people got tired of waiting, but they became more and more risk adverse. So our investment grade deals, the tenants with long-term leases in the essential category, Walgreens CBS, great example of that. There was increased demand for assets like that. Anything that had a Pharmacy. higher risk, say again? Pharmacy, supermarkets, people need to go, yeah. Exactly, convenience, things that people were still interacting with. That became the focus yeah. in Q3. Anything that had a shorter lease term or maybe wasn't really certain how they were gonna do over the next six months, just sat. Q4 has been off the charts. It's been so busy. And I think that's because people are tired of the volatility. Uh, we got through the election. They're tired of the volatility in the stock market. And they want to get into a solid asset where they can have long-term income growth. They actually have something real, have something tangible. They want the real property. Um, so there's been a lot of new buyers coming into net lease. There's been a lot of private clients saying, you know what, I'm ready to put some money out. I'm, I'm tired of sitting on the sidelines. The REITs are picking up activity, although they've shifted their investment strategy and it's kind of individual who's doing what, but everybody's coming back into the market. Um, although they are still, all spectrums, more risk adverse than they were. Lenders, same thing. There's ton of money out there to finance net lease and retail, but at lower loan to values. So everyone's just kind of pulling back their risk tolerance. So the deals that are getting done again are your essential retailers, the ones under long-term leases, the ones with good credit, anything that screams stability. It could be a 7-Eleven, could be mm -hmm. food, could be drug stores. There's a lot of categories that are, are moving, but it's again, those stable secure assets that people are looking for. Okay, cool. So who are the buyers? Because we spoke about the pre-COVID environment and people who are not necessarily in the real estate, but they want their check every month. They want the you know triple net lease, something that they don't have to work hard for. Who is now the buyer? Now, it's even more skewed to the private clients right now. We're finding a lot so of the that funds, person who's not in real estate. You're saying exactly necessarily meaning not necessarily exactly or they're in real estate and they're in another asset class and they're tired of dealing with it. 
So we have people come to us from multifamily. Maybe they're selling a building. This is so true in our area because rent control laws and all of the taxes are, are so unfavorable, right? Major. And they just don't know how to increase the value over time anymore. So they're saying, I'm, I'm done managing this. I don't want to deal with the unpredictability of, of multifamily or industrial being kind of subject to a lot of regulations, co-tenancy, so forth. I don't want to deal with any of that. I want something where I just buy it. I want to retire. Maybe the next generation can't handle all of the challenges with that real estate. So they move into net lease. So we're seeing the private clients who are coming to us for the first time for the first real estate investment. And then we're seeing still a lot of 1031 exchanges out of other asset classes into net lease on the lower end of the risk spectrum. Again, so everyone looking for security coming out of other things that maybe are more up and down. It's amazing how retail can be in one hand, like run away from right. relatively and right. go into because it's so safe, meaning relatively. Meaning if I have a CVS, it's like, meaning used to be an all right thing. And now it's the best. <laughs> it's like, right. it's unbelievable how things changed. It's Tell a us a little bit spread. about mm -hmm. Yeah, so you spread. Um, start, you started talking about lending, and I want to get into that because we are in a very unique type of environment. Now, digging into more professional talk, as we call it, we have one hand of the graph. We have usually what happens is when interest rates go down, the cap rates go down with it, and that's what happens. It's a very unique time where the cap rates are pretty much are stable, going up even a little bit, and the interest rates going down. So, uh, as risky as as things are, this is an opportunity, meaning this is something that people get into. What do you hear all around you? First of all, how are the lenders, why are they, uh, what is the environment, the lending environment, I would call it, and how are the buyers and lenders, you know, uh, come together when it comes to a deal? And what is so different now than it was before? There's a lot of interest in net lease properties from the lending side because of the stability and credit of the tenants. So just like everybody else, lenders are becoming more risk adverse. I mentioned briefly, they're pulling back on their loan to value. So maybe a deal that would have been quoted by a lender at 65, 70% loan to value is now coming in at 55, 60% loan to value. So they're pulling back on how much money and how much leverage they will lend. Rates are incredibly low, which is wonderful from an investment standpoint because you have a nice thread between interest rates and cap rates, which is your return on equity. So that is making it even more attractive, despite the low cap rates, to get into a lot of these uh, longer term net lease deals. So I'll give you a quick example. I have a 7-Eleven that I'm marketing on behalf of a developer for six cap rates very low for a 12 year new construction really low. 11 really low we're actually closing on it in a few weeks very close to list price and the the rates that came in from the lenders we got some term sheets that were sub three percent now this was a few months ago when we were pricing out the deal i'm not sure where it would be today but really aggressive financing because 7-eleven is investment grade and has one of the highest credit ratings in the industry in terms of tenants so lenders were all over that um, you know, on the flip side, we have some more tertiary fast food restaurants that we just closed on and the loan to value was 50% and the rates are going to be, you know, right around 4%, maybe a little bit higher. So big difference there based on the credit of the tenant. What's interesting though, is deals are being done. 
there is money out there for retail. Now, if I was trying to finance a 50% vacant strip mall with, you know, three local tenants, that's going to be hard. It's going to be recourse and it's going to be, again, less lower leverage, but there's always money out there. It's just what those terms are going to look like based on the strength of that tenant. Now that you mentioned recourse, that's it's exactly what I wanted to ask you. Is there a difference between how the banks look at, at uh, you know, its sponsors then and now? Absolutely. You nailed and it. Yeah. If you could specify a little bit underwriting wise, et cetera. So if it's a non-investment grade tenant, you, you really have two ways that lenders look at deals. One is if you, again, to that 7-Eleven, it's a credit tenant, amazing credit. I think they're double A right now. And you have a, a long-term lease that's in place, true triple net. You have no concerns about it, full corporate guarantee. The bank's going to care a lot less about who the sponsor is. Obviously, there's still an application process, but it's, it's not as important because their focus is on that lease and who that tenant is. If you have a strip mall with four local tenants and their terms are rolling anywhere in the next two to four years, there's a lot more focus on who that sponsor is. They're going to yeah. want much better credit from the sponsor of the deal. They're going to want better financials, maybe cross, um, you know, uh, what I'm looking for, where you cross collateralization, there we go, across different assets. If that client owns multiple properties, I've seen more requests for that. They're just going to pull back on what they're willing to put out and want more in exchange from the, the buyer or the lender's perspective. That's very cool. And tell me something, when, what is the, I would say, where do you draw the line, the banks, I would say, the lenders, where do they draw the line when it comes to um, the leases? How many years? When is the line? 10 years, five years, 20 years, 21 years? I mean, where is it? There's no line. So there is no a line. lender for everything. You might not like the terms, but there's a lender for everything. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you might like some of the terms, but I'm on saying a, a maybe someone listening will love it. Yeah. Right, right, right. So maybe on a short-term non-credit deal, you're going to have a high rate. You're going to have recourse. You're going to have low leverage, but there is a lender for you. Again, you just might right. not like the terms. So, in different banks, just like different investors, have their own strategies. And so we have a full lending arm to our company. I don't place the debt myself. And they're experts in matching the right lender to the right type of deal. Right. That's an expertise. You have to very have a very specific good, uh, finance yeah. broker. Yeah. Correct. Very specific. That's very good. Okay. So we are talking about COVID and we're talking about what's happening with COVID. And um, tell us a little bit about what our landlords going through when it comes to um, dealing with tenants. And there's a huge talk out there between dealing with nationals, which used to be, or it still is, the preferable route, you know, for everybody. Everybody wants those anchors, those big national tenants. And then you have those local mom and pops, which were always those, you know, I want them because they give me great rent. But, you know, in terms of the lease, it's not awesome. It's not great. But all of a sudden, dealing with them changed. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? You're exactly right. So Starbucks, one of our top investment grade tenants in the net lease space, sent a letter to every landlord at the beginning of COVID just saying, oh, we're really struggling. We're not going to pay rent. 
we're not struggling, right? It's pickup, it's right. drive through. You yeah. know, and, and the clients that have Starbucks and got the letter went, you gotta be kidding. We're obviously not going to give them a rent abatement or even deferral. This is ridiculous. But they do this on the national tenant basis because it works in a lot of the cases, right? Even if half the landlords reply and say, okay, we don't wanna lose Starbucks. So we're gonna go ahead and give them three months of free rent just, just to keep them happy, right? And then the other half went, you're ridiculous, I'm throwing away the letter, life goes on. So the nationals have so much power because there are less tenants to backfill spaces right now. We have increasing vacancy in retail, that's no shock. We have a lot of closures, both national and local. So landlords are, are scared. They don't wanna lose those quality national tenants. And a lot of the nationals are taking advantage of that, in my opinion, not always rightly so. Now on the flip side, you have your local tenant. Maybe it's a local restaurant, right? They don't have anywhere else to go. That's their only location. This is their family's business. They don't want to close. And it's too expensive for them to move. But they really are stuck. They can't pay their rent and they don't know what to do. So we're seeing a lot more workouts from the local tenant level, a lot more real, genuine conversations. And a lot of people said, gosh, you know, my local tenants are making nothing. They're completely closed. But they just called and said, here, I'm still going to pay you half the rent. I'm so sorry. I'll pay You'll you back as soon as this. I can, right? As soon as I can, I'm gonna pay you back. Even if it's a third, whatever I can pay you, I will. Thank you for your help. We're trying to get through. On the flip side, you know, you have the nationals going, eh, like, I don't need you. I'll go up the street, good luck. And that's not across the board. A lot of nationals have paid um, full rent and some took deferrals and are now starting to repay. So I, I don't think it's that black and white. But having that relationship with your tenant, whether it's a national or a local, I think is something all landlords have taken out of this. That moving forward, this is more of a partnership than a lot of people thought it was. hundred percent. Tell me something, you know, I want to wrap this up. I want to move on to the next post-COVID discussion. But before we do that, dealing with the lenders, that's a whole, you know, I could, we could write a whole, you know, book about that, you know, how to do it, what to do it. What do you hear all around? How are the lenders dealing with the landlords? How are the landlords dealing with the lenders? All the while dealing with the tenants? Mm -hmm. How does that work? What do you hear all around? This is a wide range too. So it depends, number one, on the type of loan that you have. Is it CMBS? Is it a local bank loan? Huge difference in what your options are going to be with the structure of your loan. Also, is it a local lender? If it's a national lender, do you have a relationship with them? Do you actually know someone that you can call on the bank that will know you when you pick up the phone? Or was this just a you know straight fill out your paperwork, you haven't talked to them in 10 years situation? So how flexible banks are being with the lenders is coming down to the structure of the loan and the relationship. And it, it's a wide range. Tell me something, just give me one example, because I'm so curious about this. Um, if I have to compare CMBS, okay, because CMBS is a big talk right now. It's a big mm -hmm. talk. Why? Because everything that happened in 2008 was subprime, you know, with the residential. was subprime, and uh, CMBS was tied to that. Everything was tied to the residential sector. Right now, it's retail, hotel, hospitality, all that, right? So... When it comes, if I'm a landlord and I want to talk to the bank and I have everything is tied to a CMBS, 
in my, at least in my loan, you know, in my debt, how is it going to be? How is it going to work? Meaning, what do you hear out there? It's really asset specific. Uh, it's tough to give a blanket answer to that, but I don't think, you know, we don't have the same leverage levels that we had in 09. So we're not, uh, most lenders are not as upside down. We have right. hopefully temporary um, sort of missing of the rent payments, right? We have this time when no income's coming in, but we have an endpoint in sight, hopefully, right? With the vaccine and the tenants reopening. So it's very, very different. We don't have valuations dropping and extreme leverage. I mean, just all of the market fundamentals are- It's mostly debt different. service. It's being able to hold debt service. Right. And I think yeah. today, you know, lenders don't want the properties back. They want, I mean, then what are they going to do with it? So we're seeing exactly. more workarounds than 09 yeah. um, and more people trying to get creative. Maybe they're doing deferrals. They're just, everyone seems to be working together more because that's the only way that anybody gets through. Having a bunch of foreclosed retail properties uh, on the market isn't going to work out very well for the lenders either. So I think there is more collaboration. Just the structure of CMBS makes it more difficult uh, to make changes to the loan. Not impossible, but it's definitely a, a lot more difficult. Okay, so right now what I want to do is to talk about now the transition. I don't want to talk about the future. I want to talk about the right now, but the transition. Because it's, you know, we're seeing the end of it. We're not in the end of it. We know that it's not over. And we know that there's still stuff going on. But everybody's already looking forward psychologically and practically. Everybody's looking forward for this to end. And we have a vaccine in the, you know, as we said, we have a vaccine coming up. It's already here. It's going to take a little while, but we're now at a transitional time. So let's say I'm now in acquisition right now. What is the perspective when I look at all those type of tenants that during COVID are literally don't get close to, but right now I'm buying a property and everybody knows that it's going to be over. Are they still dealing with it as if as it's we don't know what the future holds or let's see what type of of, of concessions you have. Let's type, let's see what type of leases you have. How is it being treated right now in terms of any deal that is going now to the future? So everyone's really out of panic mode. The core of that thinking, just the, oh my goodness, it's COVID, everything's different, what do I do, was Q2. We're, we're pretty far past that now. And we're seeing people invest based on what they should be thinking of, which is real estate fundamentals, the, the core lease structure, the location, the tenant credit, the tenant business model. There's you know eight or nine things that you really should consider with an investment, which is probably a whole nother interview um, or a discussion that we can have another time. But they're looking yeah. at it based on these core fundamentals and not really it's COVID, what do we do? That's done. So I, you know, there's certain businesses that will bounce back faster than others. I think everyone's aware of that. Would I buy a movie theater right now? Probably not, but I don't really think that's necessarily just because of COVID. I think that's streaming and a change in business fundamentals. Right. So I, it's, it's a matter of- People looking are at comfortable just watching at home. They were not comfortable before COVID. Right now they get used to it and they're not, they don't think it's that bad. That's why. That's right. exactly it. So I think a lot of these changes that have been in place are not necessarily bad. They're just a faster evolution of things that were already in the works that most people were ready for. 
So I don't, we're not going to go back on a lot Love of things, that but that's, right. it's not a bad thing. It's just change right. and change is scary. Right. But ultimately, you good. know, I heard, I heard, uh, what's his name? Uh, Les Brown, if you know Les Brown. So he said one, uh, one of the motivational speakers, I heard him say, what did he say? Oh, he said that the world is uh, turning from brick and mortar to click and order. Okay. That's <laughs> very cool. Catchy. Anyway, <laughs> it's very funny. But anyways, that's happening. It's definitely happening. So here's the question. Meaning we're still going for brick and mortar without a doubt, but it's going to mm -hmm. be in a different format, different co-tenancy, different type of, of a square footage when we look at it, different type of partnerships and stuff like that. Okay, now I want to talk about the future. Okay, where are we going from now forward? And that, and I would like to start with the opportunities. I would like to start with everybody is looking at what type of opportunities would come from retail. Okay, what type of opportunities can I find with the foreclosures that are coming, with the forbearance that is ending or not? I don't know what's now it's happening. Every day is a different news. Yeah. You know, if you listen yeah. to the news, you get confused. Um, it's like drinking, you know, having a shot of whiskey, you know, listening to the news, you get more confused than ever. The big question is what type of opportunity, opportunities we can expect? So opportunity is really in the eye of the beholder. There are many private clients that come to me looking for estate planning and stability. Opportunity for them is going to continue to be long-term leases with credit tenants. They're very happy with that five, five and a half, maybe 6% return, no expenses. That's net. That's great. That's their opportunity to put money out in a stable fashion. Then we have clients who are willing to take on more risk for tremendous upside in retail. Maybe distress. We haven't seen a lot coming to market yet. Maybe it will. I'm not sure. We'll see. We've been thinking we would, but it hasn't really been happening yet. And those what are do you clients. Think happen? I, the, the more distressed properties. We haven't seen a lot of distressed retail coming to market. People are either holding it back or they're trying to do workouts with their tenants or they're unwilling to list it with that much vacancy because the valuation will be so much lower. So maybe Q1, Q2 of next year, we'll start seeing more of that. Right now, it, it hasn't hit the market yet. But if you're a client and you're looking for upside and you're willing to work a property, there will be tremendous opportunity as long as you have an idea of what's next for that property. And every property is going to be different. Some will do very well adding an industrial component if the co-tenancy clauses and the access allow it. That's not every property. Some will do very well kind of repositioning some of the retail and adding a mixed use component if it's a larger center. Some need right. to stay strip centers and then you got to have an idea who your tenants are. I don't think anyone right now should buy a retail center with a lot of local tenants or a lot of vacancy and just think that they'll call a leasing broker and figure it out. There's no we'll figure it out later. It's buy it and have a plan now that's going to work out best. Again, it's, it's exciting and it's great and there will be good opportunity, but it's very, very asset specific on what that would look like and what would work. So bottom line is, and that's what I hear also, but you're probably hearing more, that people who have strip centers, you know, I'm talking about many multi-tenants, they are having a totally different type of experience and those who have either very few tenants, national tenants, or, or single tenant. 
So that's a whole different type of uh, dealing. Very true. End. So very, very true. Okay. So what what I want to ask you now is where are we going in terms of um, cap rates? Do you think they're going to go down now? Are people thinking I'll wait? Cap rates are going to go up, or I'll I'll buy because it's going to go down, and the interest rate is going to go up. Meaning, what what do you hear from buyers that are professional savvy buyers, not those who come to you? Uh, please help me find something stable. I'm talking about those who know know what they're doing in terms of think, real estate. I think it depends on what type of asset we're talking about. So you have uh, development constraints on a lot of the national brands. We'll stick with the CBS example. They're not opening very many new stores right now. So we have extremely limited inventory with our credit tenants under long-term leases. And that's a lot of the demand. So because we have limited development and limited expansion of the lot of, a lot of the tenants, those cap rates are gonna stay low or even compress as the deals become harder and harder to find. On the flip side, if we have a multi-tenant strip center that has vacancy and there's more of those coming to market, without question, the cap rates are gonna go up. Right now, people are holding back inventory that maybe is higher risk because they don't wanna take the hit on pricing. But there's gonna come a point when they say, I really don't want to hold this anymore or I need to get out of it because of my debt service. I need to sell. And when that starts happening, which like we just said, maybe Q1, Q2 of next year, maybe, maybe longer, then we're going to see cap rates on those types of deals go up. So it's, it's going to continue to bifurcate. It really is. It's going to be a huge spread, I think, in how that pricing is going to be looked at. And we're going to have two different retail markets at the same time. That's crazy. So we're... How do you say we can't we can't be profits, right? We're not profit. We we can only uh, sit and expect the best. Uh, tell me something. When it comes to uh, the larger, uh, you know, retail forms like uh, the large malls, the power centers, all those. What is the future for those? So we have too many back to the fact that we're over retailed in the country. We have too many enclosed malls. Your C-class malls, uh, I don't really see a future. Sorry to be negative for anyone listening who owns one, but that's difficult unless it's the only shopping choice for you know a 50 mile radius. On the flip side, we have our very well-positioned malls. Um, there's two, right? I mean, Garden State Plaza is, is a really nice example. Um, that is absolutely crushing it. It's packed, right. you drive by, you can't get a spot in the parking lot. I hate going to the mall personally, but I drive by there to go to work and it, it's insane. So you're gonna have those A-class malls because people are still gonna wanna go out and congregate and shop, maybe get dinner. That's all gonna come back, but there'll just be less. This is not going to be everybody, but there will be a subset of the population that still really enjoys that experience. For your B and C, maybe you're less well-located or any malls that don't have the population density or they're not actively putting money in for tenant improvements to attract the best tenants, or maybe their demographics just don't support uh, the kind of retail mix that they had before, or they were always on the fringe. I'm not quite making it from a you know sales volume perspective. They're gonna need to be redeveloped in some way. Maybe the retail portion shrinks and some of these medical uses come in. We're seeing that being done a lot. Um, but there's going to be some repositioning or maybe complete demolishment and rebuild of something that we haven't even thought of yet. 
So everybody's the, talking about conversions. That's the, the, the new topic. It's hard. I don't know. It's hard. Yeah, though. it's very yeah. hard. Because, yeah. You know, because if, if let's say the conversion is still within the asset class, then it makes some sense. Right. Um, or if it's something that could be turned on to something that you don't have to have very aggressive redevelopment, that makes some sense. But once you're talking about rezoning, for example, to multifamily, it's demolish. That's it. Right. And it's expensive. It's it, you know, that's, that's the issue. At what point does it stop making sense from a price perspective? Exactly. You're now talking about buying raw land and you have all of the cost to demolish, get your approvals, right. will cost go to money. the zoning People board. Think, oh, yeah. yeah. It's substantial. Why wouldn't you just buy up the street if there's available land? So again, it's going to be those markets that are supply constrained that you have to backfill. You have to reimagine because there's no other options. Those are the properties that will be successfully reimagined. The ones where there is a lot of land, it just may not pencil out. And that's going to be the, the real It's going challenge. to be painful. We're going to see a lot of white elephants over there. Right. So we, that's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Um, what I wanted to ask you is about, you started touching it a little bit, about um, developments, right? You just talk, spoke about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, there are much less developments in retail. We know that. Whoever is still doing it, and there are some who are still doing it. Who is it? Not who in terms of the person and the company. In terms of the type of company. Yep, there's there's a few categories. So 7-Eleven is expanding like crazy. We just sold a few of them this year. Um, convenience in general, really doing well. Wawa, quick check, yeah, Wawa, all of those yeah. competitors. Expansion mode, for sure. Fast food, major expansion mode. Dollar General and Family Dollar, Dollar Tree, still crazy. expanding like wildfire. I'm amazed that they have not hit market saturation, but they keep finding new sites. They're still opening 750, 1,000 new stores a year. So tremendous expansion there. Grocery, major expansion. Aldi and Lidl are absolutely crushing it, competing with each other and looking for sites all over the East Coast, probably other places as well. But those are the markets that that I'm familiar from a development perspective. So grocery. And what type of leases are they taking? 20 years? Ground leases. Ground leases. 20 ground years lease. in some cases. They're ground leasing most of uh, their built sites. Built to suit. Which, ground leases mm -hmm. built to suit? Right. Wow. I, I love those deals, actually. They're very low yeah. cap rates, but the rent is reasonable because they're ground leasing it. So you don't get the appreciation from the investor standpoint, but you have a reasonable market rent with a great tenant. So those are interesting. Those are the categories Amazing. that we are seeing the expansion. Um, daycare is quiet. Gyms are quiet, as you know. Oh, medical net lease is another big one. We haven't seen a lot of national tenants emerge from the urgent care standpoint, but I've been waiting for that. I think that will come eventually. And when we do, that will probably be a, a big source of mergers and acquisitions and then overall expansion as well. Cool. So let me ask you this. When it comes to you, if you want to tell us a little bit about you, how you function. And uh, you work primarily in the New York area, New Jersey area? Probably not. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about how the spread of where you work, what do you focus on? Sure. Um, we understand what you do in terms of the, you know, the 1031 exchanges, the more uh, national tenants, single tenants, et cetera, but where? So I am based right outside New York City in Northern New Jersey, um, but that is basically irrelevant 
because our clients are all over the country. They own, they build really anywhere. So we are market agnostic as a team. We just physically happen to be in the New York area. So we have a lot of relationships here. We sell a ton of single tenant across all these different food groups within single tenant and multi-tenant primarily on the East Coast. Um, and that's it again based on the property type it's very easy to transact anywhere in the country and there are opportunities in other markets so that's a nice benefit that we have as a team is that we can help clients diversify not only by property type but by market as well which is an important thing to do in in today's world very cool tell us a little bit i i, I saw one of your posts lately that you are uh um, that you attended the virtual ICSE. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so this was, was the first year. You know, ICSE has always been a big part of my business in terms of meeting clients, visibility, right? Yeah. It's huge. New York was our second biggest show. Vegas was five days of insanity. Um, very intense conferences for us. So this was the first year of virtual and not at all the same. I will tell you, it was the first year that I actually listened to sessions and learned because every other year I'm in back-to-back -back meetings every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Then it's client events. So instead of being networked, networking driven, which I think they tried but didn't really seem to take off from what I saw, it was content driven. It's so very hard to do the virtual stuff, uh, you know. But uh, you do Zooms, that's the way it is, but the, yeah, lectures. Not the that's same. New format, yeah. Not the same. So I don't, I mean, I, I don't know what the future of conferences and ICSE is. Hopefully it all bounces back. It's a great way to connect with people in person. So fingers crossed. Everything will come back. The question is when and how? That's the question. Exactly. Right? What will it look like when it does? What will be different? What, what stickiness will we see in some of these changes? Cool. So what, what's, what, what do you see forward for you and your business? What do you see forward? I think it's going to be a you, great year. 2021 is going to be very strong. We have a lot of people anxious to transact. Um, people need to sell. People want to buy. I think volume will pick up. Um, and it's going to be very positive. We're grateful, like I mentioned at the beginning, to be able to help clients through this time. If they need to get it out of the asset, we've been able to find buyers and move things. Our developers who have product that they've been working on for years are bringing it out to market now as some of this construction comes to you know, fruition and we're able to, to get those sold. So I, I think it's gonna be a great year. I really do. And uh, change is, like I said, not always bad. It can be good, it's interesting, it's exciting. Uh, it's gonna be challenging. But I, you know, the movement is starting to happen again, and everybody just wants to move forward. So we're we're happy to be part of that. Awesome! And right now we're going to have to wrap it up. Eventually, we could talk, as I told you in the Days, beginning. We could right? talk. <laughs> Retail could like you know, unbelievable. Know. And there's yeah. so much. Even you, know, you just mentioned in the middle. You know, what is an investment criteria? To dive deep into that, I, was, I would be so excited to do that. But it's just it's too long already. We'll have to to do it in another time yes, have to save that sure. so right now we'll have to wrap it up and I, I would like you to tell everybody who's listening uh now and then you know that what's what's good about these live shows and podcasts that people can listen now people can listen later maybe they'll hit this within a week a month you know six months what do you want to tell them and how can they find you 
and how what type of service you want you can give them and help them absolutely so there are a few ways to reach our team we have a video series called cre fast five which covers hot topics each week and for- it's very good Thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. So CRE Fast Five on YouTube, LinkedIn. It's on all the podcast channels as well. Our team website is iaconoretailgroup.com, I-A-C-O-N-O. And uh, feel free to email, call, you know, just Google. You'll you'll find more articles and information and, and videos than you possibly could want. But I think the message is this is a time to connect. You know, don't think of our team or, or any of the top brokers as just transactional. This is the time to get information, to build relationships. So if you have a new retail idea you're considering or you're a landlord and you don't know what to do next, call. We may not have the answer, but we can certainly point you in the right direction or talk it through because That's the a next great few message. years is, is just, it's about working together and building those relationships. That's a great message because today, especially today, nowadays, and a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines and not doing deals, Mm -hmm. and I know a lot of those, um, it's the time to connect. And if you're looking at this and you're looking and you're listening to Kali, um, connect. And that's a great opportunity to learn a lot. You heard today so so much information we got today. And and who knows where your next deal will be. Maybe you want to do a 1031 exchange. Maybe you do something. Maybe... You want to learn a little bit more about this sector and uh, and dive deep into that. And uh, you can, and behind every service or behind every deal, there are people and you should get to know the people. So uh, here we go. So you guys can find the link. Um, if you're looking at this live or later, it doesn't matter. You can find these links wherever they are here on the page, up and down, all around. And if you're listening to the podcast, you can listen, you can look at, uh, you know, at, uh, at the description of this podcast and you will see all the details and the links, Carly's links, and you'll be able to uh, to contact her. So with that, Carly, thank you so much. Stick around. We're going to schmooze a little bit. But I want to tell you guys, take care of yourselves. Have a beautiful Monday morning and get and crush it. Get to work. Crush it. Make deals. Analyze. Do whatever you need to do in order to get things done. And on Thursday, we're going to be back here. Take care of yourselves, guys. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in this CRE Shark Eye Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And go subscribe, download, do whatever you guys need to do. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care of yourselves.